Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from the front lines of the war in Ukraine, analyse this week's tension in the Balkans, and talk about the potential Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kherson. Finally, Dominic Nichols interviews Ukraine's acting deputy head of the military intelligence. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 2nd of August, day 160. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been there's been more fighting down in the south. These these probing uh, counterattacks that we've been seeing of late around the Kherson area seem to have continued. There was a, a high mass strike a couple of nights ago, uh, was suspected high mass strike given the uh, given the range and precision. Uh, a train line coming out of Crimea, ostensibly moving towards the, the Kherson region. I think it was about 40k southeast of, of the city itself uh, was was struck. And uh, there's footage on social media of uh, you know, very loud, very large explosions there, thought to be ammunition and possibly troops supporting or be moved into that area, as we've been talking about over the last few days. So it really does look as though that area is becoming a, a, the, the current operational focus for for Ukraine and by necessity, therefore, also the focus for Russia as they as they have to move around, move troops around from the Donbass region, which really has do, has done nothing much over the last the last couple of weeks um, into the south to uh, to sort of shore up the positions there. Um, elsewhere, there's uh, five people, three three British men uh, plus uh, uh, two other men from uh, Croatia and Sweden, have uh, been accused of mercenaries. They're going to stand trial in a proxy a proxy court. So these three guys, John Harding, uh, Dylan Healy and uh, Andrew Hill, Andrew Hill being a, a military volunteer, they're, they're going to be tried in uh, the, the so-called Supreme Court of the Donetsk People's Republic. This is from, from Russia's news agency, TASS. They're all... Um, all said to be, or they're all being, they're accused of being foreign citizens, quote, foreign citizens accused of mercenarism. Not not familiar with that word, but I guess that means mercenary. Um, somewhat ironic, given that the Wagner group is very active in Russia. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what they're being, they're being accused of. And they're also being, they're, they're said to have been members of the, of the Ukraine's, uh, of Ukraine's Azov Battalion and other military units that were, that were captured in Mariupol. So this is, I mean, we've seen this before. We are going to see this again. The Foreign Office have, have condemned it and um, condemned the exploitation of prisoners of war and civilians for, for political purposes. That's a quote. And uh, they will continue to to keep up that um, that rhetoric, the, the Foreign Office. But I, I think these uh, I think we're going to see more of these these kind of show trials. Um, not not clear uh, quite what will happen like like others we've seen another two recently. 
They could very well receive the death sentence that is, again, largely for show, although no less shocking and, and very, very uh, worrying for the for the families involved for that. Um, but the uh, we've seen prisoners being used not only for, for prisoner exchanges, which is which is quite normal, uh, but also as political pawns, which is not normal. And that is that is absolutely against the Geneva Convention uh, and subject against the rights of of those that have been um, that are no longer combatants. And the only other thing to note it's worth having a look at um, Dmitry Medvedev, the former former president, the head of the National Security Council, Putin's one of one of Putin's closest aides. He's um, he's had another another great night out. He's uh, he's taken to social media. And he's accusing Kazakhstan and Georgia, saying they're they're artificial states and saying, quote, all the peoples inhabiting the once great and mighty USSR once again live together in friendship. Now, that's the end of the quote. Um, that was quickly deleted and Medvedev later claimed his account had been hacked. But I think I think, you know, when the vodka flows, we, we the mask slips and we see yet again the, the bigger picture for these guys. Um, they really are just living in in some in some fantasy world, regretting the the uh, the end of the the Cold War and end of the Soviet Soviet Union, and just doing making it very clear when when you know, in less guarded moments, very clear what their what their thinking is, underlining the threat not only to the clear threat to Ukraine, but also to their near abroad elsewhere, as if as if we needed reminding. But no, that was uh, that's that's quite an interesting one from from Dmitry Medvedev. Thank you, Dom. Francis, can I turn to you? Vladimir Putin uh, has been speaking um, to a keynote UN conference on uh, nuclear war. What did he say and why does it matter? Yes, well, uh, no one can win from a nuclear war and it should never be unleashed. That's according to uh, Vladimir Putin um, with regard to this uh, conference on the non-proliferation treaty, um, which is hosted... uh, currently being hosted and the president the russian president has made these remarks which are, no doubt to our regular listeners will seem rather ironic given that it's the russians who have been saber rattling most ag- aggressively in recent months and particularly putin in terms of threatening uh, uh the use of these weapons satan 2 um which can you know destroy european capitals before they'd have the time to react supposedly um these are the weapons that are currently being developed um so uh yes it, it, it rather con- well interesting remarks to say the least and it's been met by by similar um <laughs> confusion i think it's fair to say from um other western powers so the us britain and france have rebuked russia for its irresponsible and dangerous talk about possibly deploying nuclear weapons saying that the ties between russia and the west have been unraveling over the course of the conflict um and uh but but putin nonetheless remains defiant has insisted that moscow has consistently remained faithful to the non-proliferation treaties letter and spirit in his address um so uh, i don't think we should read necessarily too much into it uh, apart from the fact that it does obviously mark a change in tone from the start of the invasion when he was obviously consistently making thinly veiled threats about his willingness to uh, deploy uh, nuclear weapons um and uh, but nonetheless i think uh the, the this should be seen as 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 just another example of putin saying one thing and 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 doing another and shouldn't really be seen as being too much more significant than that you can never trust really anything that he says or the russian state says in in any of these diplomatic remarks before we bring in uh, Roland to talk about uh, serbian kosovo uh, dom i realize you want to say something quickly on nukes before before you head off yeah, I'd just like to add that actually, despite the, the current bellicose language from Russia, the the idea of um, of cooperating in the nuclear realm has been quite stable in the last few decades. Russia uh, and for the Soviet Union and America have actually cooperated pretty pretty well over the years on on bringing down the numbers um, and. I mean, Biden. They're trying to. They're trying to put this current thing in New York. They're trying to push to uh, to to get on the road for the new START treaty. Start being the strategic arms reduction talks. The current one expires in 2026. So, so there is there is work ongoing on that, and it has been a, a, a rare area of of cooperation. I would say very very soft sea cooperation. Um, however, if that starts to unravel, that is that is not only very serious because America and Russia have have by far far and away. The, the world's greatest number of nuclear warheads and and you just don't want ambiguity here you do want a, 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 this to be the rare 
outbreak of common sense and an area where you can meet and discuss sensibly um, an area of, of extreme global import. But of course, the other thing is that China is not part of, of the, the current mechanisms. Um, and therefore, if these things are allowed to unravel and if there is is disagreement over over how you talk about them, let alone any type of controlling of the numbers between America and Russia, then then that that gives China absolutely no reason whatsoever to try and engage with this process and to um, I wouldn't say coming from the coal, but but to, to to engage sensibly on this on this matter of of extreme global importance. So I think this is this is very worrying what we're seeing between Russia and America. They 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 have cooperated. They are, are currently cooperating, although the, the edges are fraying slightly. And, and any move away from this this reasonably close cooperation and an outbreak of common sense is very very worrying. Um, as I say, for its own right and for also um, the lessons that China would take from it. And and if there's anything that they take from it to say, well, there's there's no need for us to engage. We just don't need to, to get involved because the whole thing's falling apart anyway. Then that is very worrying indeed. And that's not not to say there are other actors in the background um most most notably north korea iran um uh, india pakistan israel thought slash known to be nuclear powers themselves and others aspiring to that uh, to that status that if they see these these global um, understandings these global treaties unraveling and they see the new the new big boy on the block china not taking part, then it just means that, that they will take the message as well that these things are, are are not worth engaging in. So, so somewhat worrying, a worrying development there for nuclear diplomacy. Uh, uh, no pun intended. Slow burn, but definitely one to keep an eye on. If I could just come on back on that, Dom is absolutely right to talk about the cooperation that's been going on between the nuclear powers um, up until now. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago, but it was only in January that the five members of the UN Security Council, such as the US, China, Russia, Britain and France, actually pledged to prevent the further dissemination of of nuclear weapons. So, um, you know, just it just speaks to the fact that there has been cooperation on this issue. But although I believe it was back in 2015 that, that the parties were unable to actually reach agreement on the substantive issues about how best to do that. Uh, and just speaking to, you know, the, the inherent danger in all of this is at this conference in New York that's opened yesterday. Uh, the UN Secretary General warned that the world now faces, quote, nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War. Uh, humanity is just one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. So strong words, of course. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think, uh, um, as Dom says, this, there has actually been a lot of progress since the Cold War on this issue. Um, and there are considerably fewer nuclear weapons in, uh, in the world now than there were at, at the nuclear war, at, uh, at the height of the Cold War. But nonetheless, of course, uh, one could argue that, that one such weapon um, that, that that's that's being utilised as uh, as a possibility and being talked about in the way that Vladimir Putin had is 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 one too many. I'd just like to add quickly um, that when we I mean when we were in Dom and I were in Ukraine last week, we interviewed uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, and when one of my questions to him was. You know, we, we do see, I think, that uh, there's less interest in the war from international media. Um, wh- what does he say to that? And one of his responses was was, was um, the nuclear question. I mean, he said, look, we, there are five big nuclear power plants in Ukraine. If something happens to one of them, if there's an accident or, or if they're shelled or if there's a leak of radiation, then um, that will have an impact not just on Ukraine, but but potentially the, the whole of Europe and, and the world. So it was certainly something that the top echelons of the uh, of, of Ukraine are thinking quite deeply and carefully about. Um, Roland, you've been listening to all of this. I just wondered, just wondered if you had any, anything to add, any, any comments before we move on to talking about uh, Serbia and Kosovo? Oh, nuclear stuff scares me. Um, <laughs> no, I think um, I think that's very very well covered. I mean, the um, I was down on uh, on the opposite side of the banks of the River Dnipro um, the day the Russians stormed into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, um, and you know around there there, there was serious worry. Um, you know, the, the local authorities were handing out um, you know iodine tablets um to you know give to the population take this in case there's a leak and so on and so forth um genuine worry um and of course all of these towns in these areas have evacuation plans that are based on uh, on the lessons of chernobyl um i remember speaking to the to the mayor of this place he said yes we have got an evacuation plan but it requires moving about sixty thousand people in three hours on buses and no one thought there would be a war going on so it's not going to happen um so yes um you know, e- extremely worrying. Um, 
and, and, and one would hope that some kind of common sense would prevail. Yeah, just on this issue of, uh, of Zaporizhia, I mean, there's been some very interesting remarks overnight from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, calling Russia's actions uh, around Ukraine's new largest nuclear power plant the height of irresponsibility, accusing Moscow of using it as a nuclear shield in attacks on Ukrainian forces. The idea being that, of course, they, they, if they have their military base near this power plant, then the Ukrainian forces aren't able to fire on them, but the Russians are able to fire back. So this is hence why... Uh, Anthony Blinken has described this as a as a nuclear shield, um, as a, as opposed to a sort of human shield. Um, and uh, as 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 Roland says, of course, there's huge concerns about what could happen in the worst case scenario. We've seen Chernobyl. Um, we've seen other examples in recent years of of where nuclear plants have failed. Um, so um, that's obviously concerning, and it's concerning to the whole world at the moment. Hence, why the UN have have also issued a statement. Um, uh, sort of talking, obviously condemning these actions, and uh, and uh, also the Russians have have put forward a reply so saying we repeatedly state that the actions of our armed forces in no way undermine Ukraine's nuclear security or impede routine operation of the power plant. Well, um, one can one can uh, obviously heavily dispute that as is what is being done, but nonetheless, um, think it important to to mention what both sides are saying on this. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Roland. And thank you, Dom. And Dom, we realise that you might have to jump off. But if you do want to stay listening or, or do you want to add to anything, please, of course, jump in. Um, can we talk about uh, Serbia and Kosovo? There's been some tensions on the border in recent days. Um, Roland Oliphant, what's, what's happening um, and what's the relevance to the war in Ukraine? Right. So it's so quite late on Sunday night. Um, and I know this because I was just putting the finishing touches to the foreign pages because I was on editing duty. Um, suddenly we started getting reports of something happening on the border of Serbia and Kosovo, um, gunfire, uh, assault, some people saying that um, President Vucic was about to order, President Vucic of Serbia was about to order an invasion or that um, Prime Minister Albin Kurti of Kosovo was about to order uh, an invasion of the uh, the ethnic Serbian kind of enclaves in, in the northern part of Kosovo. What had actually happened, it turned out, um, is uh, Serbian activists... Um, from the northern part of Kosovo, where there is a, a large kind of Serbian minority, um, had taken big lorries filled with gravel and blockaded the roads at several border crossings. Um, now, this is in protest against um, a proposed law that which had been flagged um, back in June by the Kosovan government. Um, so they knew this was going to happen. Everyone knew it was going to kick in um, on August the 1st, which is why the protest happened on the Sunday night. Um, and that law... Uh, basically says if you are it, it says two things one is that you're going to have to if you if you're driving around with Serbian plates and you're a resident of Kosovo you're going to have to change them for uh, Kosovan plates and the other thing is um, if you are a traveler coming in from Serbia on Serbian papers you'll have to exchange your documents for uh, temporary uh, travel documents issued by the Kosovan authorities now the Kosovans say this is um, this is simply uh, a purely reciprocal um, measure and it's intended to reflect exactly what the Serbs do when, when Kosovans go into Serbia, which a lot of them do. There's a lot of movement across that border. Um, uh, this is all you know, it's quite Balkan and complicated, but, but it's quite important to understand these points. So the Serbs, since they do not recognize the independence of Kosovo, say when a Kosovan citizen comes across the border, um, as far as we're concerned, you're a Serbian citizen because we think Kosovo is part of Serbia. Um, therefore, we're going to say you've lost your, your documents for whatever reason. Here is a, a three-month or whatever temporary travel document. Off you go. Um, and it works quite well. So the, the Kosovans feel that that is they are perfectly within their rights to implement a, a, a reciprocal mirror image measure um, to kind of assert their sovereignty. Um, uh, the Serbs say, no, this is a, a terrible assault on, on, on freedom of movement um, and so on. Now, this is not a new thing. So you, you may remember back in September, um, there was a, a huge standoff over a similar issue around number plates. Um, again, the Kosovans saying we're doing this because um, the Serbs already do it. it. It's simply about sovereignty. It's not going to inconvenience anyone. Um, barricades again. Um, it escalated to President Vucic sending his army down to the border, a big show of force, um, a small little war scare which never turned into a war. Um, this is a problem that obviously goes all the way back to 1999 and, 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 and everything connected with that war and the fact that Serbia is never going to accept um, Kosovo's independence and, and so on. It's a very long, long-running thing. But 
in the context of the Ukraine war, everything is now in the context of the Ukraine war. Serbia is a close Russian ally, and there are are serious fears, obvious jitters in Western capitals that um, the Kremlin may persuade President Vucic to stir up some trouble in the Balkans um, as a way of distracting the West from what's going on in um, Ukraine. And hence, as soon as this news broke um, on kind of pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian social media on the Telegram channels, things like that, you had you had you had both sides uh, basically predicting a full-scale war in the Balkans. Um, so I was, I was reading um, these pro-Russian kind of military telegram channels, which are usually kind of talking all about, um, you know, how many Ukrainians have killed the stuff in Ukraine, you know, suddenly saying, right, that's it, the, 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 um, the Kosovans are about to start an ethnic cleansing campaign against, against the Serbs in Kosovo, and Serbia will have to invade, and they'll have to, and, and, and President Vucic is about to appeal to the Kremlin for, for a Russian military support, which obviously didn't happen. On the other hand, you had, um, you know, kind of pro-Ukrainian voices saying, right, this is it. You know, Putin's forced his his puppet in the Balkans to do this. Um, and, and there's going to be a big war. And, and basically, the there's a new front. Um, now, I think that Western powers, Western governments seem to take this pretty seriously because they jumped on this quick. All right. So within a couple of hours... The U.S. ambassador and the EU ambassador had been to see uh, Prime Minister Kurti of, of Kosovo, and he had agreed to put back this rule change by a month. Um, and that seems to have diffused things for at least 30 days. Um, so takeaways, war in the Balkans has not broken out. Um, it's definitely a tense situation that shouldn't be underplayed. Um, it, we're going to be looking at it again in 30 days on the 1st of September. Um, but... Even though everybody involved in Ukraine is watching the Balkans very carefully, we shouldn't forget this is these are long-running issues with their own grievances, which long, long predate. It's a fault line that long predates uh, the current war and has its own dynamics. Well, thank you, Roland. That was incredibly comprehensive. Dom, uh, Francis, do you have any questions about, about this for, that our listeners might find useful? Yeah, just one for me, if I may. Uh, hi, Roland. So, I mean, you've covered it quite extensively there that that, that this is not directly related to Ukraine, but just wonder what you thought Vladimir Putin might take from this, whether or not he'd be pleased that there is a little bit of a, of a rumble elsewhere in Europe um, that tangentially involves NATO, because, of course, there's the K4 uh, soldiers still there, have been since 1999, or whether whether this would be a distraction for, for Putin and he doesn't want uh, um, anything to detract from, from what's happening in Ukraine. Just be interested in your thoughts there. Um, I, I think I think probably for Putin, anything that that stretches NATO thinner or, or has the West worried um, is to his advantage. He's not really in a position to directly assist Serbia in a in a in a shooting war if it were to happen um, at this stage. Um, and there the, are the long been you know concerns um, in the West that he was planning to do that. So there's a there's this there's this thing in in the city of Nish in southern Serbia called the Russian Humanitarian Center. Um, and if you go there, I was given a tour of it by this very, very friendly man from the Russian uh, emergency minist- uh, Ministry of Emergency Situation a couple of years ago. And it's 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 kind of fireman's training stuff. It's stuff for responding to floods. And it's it's meant to be a, a gift of friendship um, for for helping the Serbs respond to, I don't know, if there are forest fires or if the Danube floods or something like that. Um, it seems pretty much taken by by kind of Western intelligence agencies that no, that is a Ford logistics hub and it's meant to be turned into a logistics hub um, if Russia ever wants to you know quickly fly in military support in the event of a conflict. That's and, and also they think it's a spy hub. The Russians deny that obviously. So those those fears exist and there's definitely serious serious rhetoric um, that would suggest uh, an effort to stir things up. Um, so I definitely think uh, Putin would welcome it. Thank you, Roland, for that. that. As I said, that was very comprehensive. Um, there's two big things I think we should talk about. One, uh, first, well, firstly, Roland, you've been doing a lot of talking, so we'll go to Francis first. Um, Francis, yesterday we had Louis Ashworth, our economics reporter, talking about uh, how the how some experts think the economic impact of sanctions within Russia might be far greater than the Kremlin is revealing or telling us. Um, you've had some thoughts on this. Um, what do you think? 
Yes, well, it was really interesting hearing Louis' summary of this fascinating Yale paper um, on the economic impact of, of of the sanctions thus far. And I, I thought he summarised it incredibly well. You know, this talk about uh, despite the lingering uh, leakiness, Russian imports have largely collapsed. Russia's strategic positions as a commodities exporter has irretrievably deteriorated. I mean, it's very, very strong stuff, and I would recommend that people listen to it. But I wanted to take a, a slightly different angle on this, which is whilst I think one can't dispute the economic impact of of the sanctions on Russia, that doesn't mean that we should it's all, you know, plain sailing from the Western perspective. All it is is a matter of time until um, until suddenly there's some sort of internal implosion. And so I wanted to look a little bit at the at the actual reaction within Russia to the sanctions. And there's been some more, I suppose, concerning reading that's come out on this. I'm thinking particularly of a book by Richard Connolly um, published by Cambridge University Press, which he summarised in the Sunday Times last weekend, where he essentially talk about, talked um, spoke about um, sanctions inadvertently pushing Russia's elite closer to Putin's state and accelerating its turn to China. So one of his arguments is that sanctions often create opportunities for enrichment, that the price of goods that are sanctioned rise sharply, offering the political leadership in the target country an opportunity to transfer resources to key political allies who promise to supply these goods. So it can, again, draw people in closer to the state in that way. Second, the longer sanctions remain in place, the more the target country can adjust to the new circumstances. One could argue, of course, that's already happening in Russia. The collapse in the value of the ruble in March uh, being a case in point in the early days of the war. This was presented as sort of a successful Western policy. However, adaptive measures have now kicked in within Russia um, and they've obviously put in capital controls, etc. And whilst the, the weeble, ruble remains weak, it's remained perhaps slightly more static than was expected. Um, and and so there's evidence that 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 that. Of course, as well, it brings to for all the reasons that we've talked about in the podcast previously, the Russian people it, it feel that this plays into a narrative of the West sort of uh, always being the enemy uh, that Putin, of course, has been peddling for many, many years. And so you've got this situation where whilst the sanctions are working, it, this isn't necessarily moving them away from Putin as a leader. And indeed, there has been obviously numerous polls that we've cited on this podcast that suggest that support for Putin still remains strong, particularly in rural areas, whilst there's more scepticism in cities, that this still remains something that is broadly supported, given the propaganda that they are receiving and everything else. So um, I just wanted to flag that, that, that whilst it's certainly true, I think, that, that perhaps the narrative that we've started to see in recent um, weeks that the Russian economy actually has proved rather more robust than we believed is not true, that actually this is having a hugely damaging consequence, um, which will not be sustainable long, long term. That does not yet mean at the same time that this is, that, that this is a likely to, to shorten the war at the very least, shorten Putin's uh, reign in power. It could have the opposite impact. Now, just one other thought on this is what do you do when the market is able to essentially adapt? I mean, one of the big problems that, that have obviously occurred in recent uh, days, really, is that as the price of oil and gas uh, has, has gone up, whilst less is being bought by European powers, the amount of money that, that, that Russia makes still remains incredibly high because of this price rise. And so there was a very interesting New York Times editorial, which I would point re people to read about a American plan to essentially um, avert this by establishing a buyer's cartel. So an agreement among Russia's customers to put a price ceiling on Russian oil um, that would be considerably lower than the market price. Um, and but, but would still obviously still mean that they would be buying um, the oil, but it would be uh, ensuring that that the Russia can't profit over uh, considerably more than they would otherwise have been able to. So um, I think that there's there's some interesting conversations that are taking place here around making sure that the robustness and strength of sanctions continues as the market adapts and the value of Russian energy goes goes up. Um, but nonetheless, as I say, the concerning thing, and no doubt this is a central conversation that's taking place in European capitals around the world, particularly amongst the intelligence communities, is is what does this mean for the support for the war within Russia? And I, indeed, as I say, um, the, the, 
the, the jury is very much out on that. Thank you, Francis. Um, Roland, just quickly, obviously, with your with your Russians, uh, with your uh, with your Russian, have you picked up much on how people within the country or, or without are sort of dealing with sanctions or how it's impacting their daily lives at all? Do you know what I think? My impression, I have I haven't been back to Russia since the war began, but my impression is a lot of people are kind of kind of able to pretend that life is more or less normal in a surprising to a surprising degree. Um, like the, the, the sanctions, as far as I'm aware, haven't really begun to really hit and bite ordinary people. But, you know, a few months ago, people were saying, look, uh, and based on kind of projections by uh, Russia's own central bank um, and Ministry of Finance, that, you know, people are going to start running out of savings. Um, companies are going to start running out of reserves, things like that, um, probably around September, October. Right? Autumn is when people have been predicting this is really going to bite. And that, I think, you know, autumn is going to be difficult for the West as well, obviously. But we're all looking, you know, with very, very nervously at the coming energy crisis and, and what Russia is going to do with the gas supply. Um, it's also going to be a big test for Russia. Um, so my, my impression at the moment is that people are, you know, a lot of them, surprisingly, especially in those big cities, um, able to kind of carry on with their lives pretty much, you know, pretty much as it was before, um, and, and managing in one way or another to kind of not even think about the war. Um, but I think, you know, there is a chance that this, this, this tidal wave is coming um, and things are going to start getting a lot more difficult for a lot more people. Um, again, you know, like, like so much in war, um, you know, it's, it's unpredictable. You don't know it's going to hit until it hits. You don't know if it's going to work and, and, uh, until it does. Um, but I, if I was in the Kremlin, I'd be very nervous about um, about how how they're going to manage this winter. Thanks, thanks, Roland. Um, the last big thing I think we should talk about actually is with with you, Roland. You've been thinking about and writing about the uh, potentially incoming counterattack in Kherson. Could you give us a sense of of your thoughts of of what the Ukrainians are planning, how possible it might be, uh, and what should our listeners be be paying attention to in the next few weeks? Yeah, so I mean, um, to break it down into kind of armchair general arrows on the map kind of stuff, there's basically four bridges um, which are key to this. Um, the first one, of course, is the, the, the Antonovsky Bridge, um, which goes into a, a suburb of Kherson, um, just to the east of the city, uh, where the river is about 500 metres wide. That's the road bridge that was famously hit by the HIMARS and put out of action um, the other week. Um, that was the most important bridge um, across the Dnieper that the Russians controlled. That was where they were getting most of their supplies, and it was also the, the bridge that most civilians were using. Um, that's now pretty much out of action, we think, and very unlikely to be repaired. Go um, half a mile up the river, there's a railway bridge. Um, now, the Russians, that, that I believe has been hit quite recently, actually, but the Russians have stopped using that because of the high mass strikes on the ammunition dumps at railheads because they're realising if we bring our trains across... Um, right up to the front and we unload our ammunition which is what they've been doing for most of the war suddenly that's incredibly vulnerable to these high precision strikes they've stopped using that so that's kind of out of action so their main their main bridge now across the Dnieper their last proper bridge across the Dnieper um, is up at a place called Novokarkova um, if you look on a map that's about 30 miles upstream there is a hydroelectric dam there and that's more difficult for the Ukrainians because if you hit that, um, you're going to release the reservoir behind it and there's a risk of, you know, a catastrophic flood that's going to kill an awful lot of people. Um, you know, I've, I've heard people saying things like um, it would destroy everything 800 metres on either side of the river. Um, so you don't, you don't want to, to blow up that dam, tempting as it may be. Um, but that creates a bottleneck. And then so every Russian truck has to go across that bridge. They turn left, they come down, they have to drive 30 miles down the bank um, to get to Kherson, along the way there is a tributary of the um, uh, of the Dnieper called the Inhulet, and there's another bridge there which the Ukrainians have been hitting. So those are the four bridges um, that they want to take out. And the idea is basically um, the Russians are going to be, you know, out of heavy weapons, out of ammunition, out of resupply, and they're going to be incredibly vulnerable. Now the question is, um, to my mind, whether the Russians decide to make defending it a priority because. Go back to World War II, which is what the Russians love to do. Think about the Battle of Stalingrad. Very similar situation. This, this small, small foothold that the, the Soviets had um, in a city on the far side of the Volga. They are having to bring in all their supplies overnight on barges. They're extremely vulnerable to the Luftwaffe. But they held on 
and they kept on and kept on until you know a counterattack could be put in um, another uh, you know around the sides, and we all know how that ended. Um, so there's two big questions. One is when can the Ukrainians really get the the capacity to get to really launch the offensive because we're still in the probing kind of stages now. And the second question is how much effort are the Russians going to put into kind of trying to sustain a foothold um, despite these logistical problems, maybe sending people across on ferries across the river at night or something like that. If they can get infantry in there and they really decide and those infantry are motivated and they want to fight, they could make her son a real meat grinder, something like Mariupol, and that would slow down the Ukrainians and that would that would play to the Russians' advantages in in men, basically. So that, I think, is the thing to look out for. I think the Ukrainians are going to try and put this thing to bed you know, by the end of summer, summer lasts till about September in southern Ukraine. Maybe Francis on the history and Dom on the military side, would you like to come in and add anything or ask any questions? Well, I just it was very interesting hearing Ronan talk, talk about the Battle of Stalingrad. There's another interesting echo in all of this, which is um, from the German perspective during the Battle of Stalingrad, um, they believe that they could hold out once they were um, sort of becoming surrounded by the Russians. And uh, uh, I think it was um, the... the um, uh, Luftwaffe, who basically made the promise that they would be able to continue to supply the Germans um, for for considerably uh, for longer, you know, by by doing a sort of Berlin air, Berlin F air, airlift style resupply over over many weeks and months, but they were not able to do so. And I don't know; it just sort of reminds me of uh, how um, you know Russia has throughout the start of this war has been making all sorts of pronouncements about its uh, supply cap- resupply capability, about its military prowess, about the number of tanks it has, and everything else. And it speaks to that kind of rhetoric that an overconfidence and indeed arrogance that um, that Nazi Germany had um, in its Russian campaign, that ultimately uh, making these promises that were not able to be actually be delivered. Um, uh, cost them not only Stalingrad, but arguably the entirety of the Eastern Front. So that would just be, be my only observation. The only thing I'd add is that I, th- I think Ukraine are going to be, going back to their books, going to be uh, rereading their Sun Tzu, because I think they what, what they definitely do not want to do is get decisively engaged with Russia. We've seen Russia just don't care about how many how many people die here, civilians, soldiers from either side, and what have you. So they are they're not going to give up that area without uh, without a fight. They'd be quite happy to fight in the streets of Kherson, and and urban combat is just horrifically much worse than fighting in rural areas. I mean, the the, the ratios of attacker to defender for a successful attack goes through the roof. It's, it's we we say about three to one for rural areas is at least five or six to one probably higher um, nowadays in rural, sorry, in urban areas. So it would be a, a horrific attack in the, the tight confines of a city where you lose all your advantage of long range precision strike because it, it's just so, so difficult in there. Um, so, so Russia would be quite happy for that, for the fight to descend into that. Uh, Ukraine, as I said, one of, one of the things that Sun Tzu said, the ancient Chinese military um, strategic genius said, you, you don't necessarily want to, totally surround your enemy because then then he's got nowhere to go and he has to fight and he comes at you hard if you if you leave an avenue out or a couple of avenues out it always just leaves a seed of doubt in their mind that oh i don't have to do this fight i can actually try, try and make a run for it if i if i want to so i wouldn't be surprised if ukraine allow an area or an avenue out it might be the dam that roland was talking about because as you say you don't want to destroy that in the first place um but it's very happy very handy to channel your adversary, but but also quite quite handy to give them a, give them a route out, so they can if the Russian army cracks and folds, they they've got a they've got a way out. They they they, they might take that option, uh, and then it's it's always a lot easier again back to the Sun Tzu um, to to win a battle without or not easier. It's more pre- it's preferable to win a battle without fighting than actually have to 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 get decisively engaged because Ukraine just simply do not have the personnel here. So Russia would be quite happy to get decisively engaged and up close and personal. In the kind of meat grinder war, Ukraine absolutely have to avoid that at all costs, and I think there are going to be a lot of shaping operations to try and to try and coerce the Russian army into committing to a a, a course of action before Ukraine has to just just get in there in the close battle and, and start and start sort of winkling out of the point of the bayonet. So so a lot more shaping actions to come, but I wouldn't be surprised if if there were if there were some um, some routes left open for the uh, for the Russian army to to uh, withdraw through. No doubt that's a calculation that's currently taking place amongst the Ukrainian high command, which is if they do, they have the capacity to do to form this this 
this uh, encirclement or not. I mean, just to Dom's point, it's absolutely true um, that, you know, you, you would want somebody to potentially have a way out. But if you don't feel that you can otherwise otherwise defeat them and that it would be you know, hugely a huge sapping of your strength to, to hold them there and to have this sort of um, holdout. But at the same time, I would just sort of say that, of course, from the Ukrainian perspective, they are going to be very sensitive to the fact that they are going to want to have a and deliver a knockout blow on Russia soon. At the very least, something symbolic, whether that be the seizure of Kurzon or a huge military defeat of the Russians, because of these other the war on other fronts, particularly in terms of international opinion, in terms of energy, and all of these things, they are very sensitive. I think to the growing sense that Ukraine has to show that they are making progress that can lead to an ultimate victory. Otherwise, um, there may well be sort of some more serious questions being asked. And indeed, I think it's also important to say that, of course, it's all well and good saying that you're pushing forward, so, um, you're giving giving the Russians an escape route. But at the end of the day, if you still believe that you're going to have to fight them somewhere, it's probably better to fight them when you've got them in a situation of being encircled. I mean, there are numerous examples in Second World War of where, for example, they weren't able to completely encircle the German forces around the Falaise Gap in 1944 and by not doing so it had huge ramifications for the rest of that campaign and some historians even argue that if they managed to if the Allies had managed to close the Falaise Gap and the German soldiers who um, were, were in there that were, had, had not been able to escape then that may well have meant that the war would have been shortened by several months and maybe even Operation Market Garden which was of course a failed attempt to to end the war early may well have been successful so um, I, you know, there are numerous military campaigns where if you think a big fight is going to is going to come, then you may well want to uh, to do so in a way. But as, as, as Don was saying, I don't think that the Ukrainians feel they probably have the capacity to to do so yet. So it's probably more likely that they will let them escape. But this is a big, big, I think, no doubt, a big conversation and calculations that are being made in Ukraine because they're going to need to have some sort of, I think, victory that could be pointed out soon that the West can then respond to and that will hopefully bring them more support. Well, thank you, Francis, Roland and Tom for, for that and for all of your expertise and your reporting. Um, we've probably run out of time here, I think, unfortunately. Can I just get your, your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of in the next few days? What, what should they be looking to um, and, and, and thinking about in, in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, Francis or Roland, I don't know, or Dom, actually, because I know you, you might have to head off. Would you like to go first? Yes, I mean, it's slightly out of the way, but um, I really would keep an eye on on the reaction to Nancy Pelosi's expected visit to Taiwan. She's due to land, I think, in the next hour and a half. Um, and this could be extremely provocative to China, although they, they've been fairly muted so far, apart from rolling a few um, amphibious vehicles up and down the beaches. Um, but, but interestingly, Russia have come out to, to denounce this visit, I think just trying to court Beijing. But it will be interesting to see both from Russia and, well, Russia, China and the US uh, point of view, the comms that are put out about this, if if indeed, as looks likely, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, does does um, does arrive in uh, Taipei in the next couple of hours. I would just echo that. I think it's going to be very, very interesting seeing what takes place on this, um, because, of course, it all plays into the much broader geopolitical themes that we've touched on this podcast so often, which is uh, the, the shift perhaps of Russia towards China, China becoming more robust um, on its foreign policy in reaction to where the West becoming more robust. All of these questions, I think it'll be very interesting to see whether the, the visit does indeed um, go ahead. Um, just one other thing I wanted to, to flag, which is we've talked so much on this podcast about Germany and its reaction to the energy crisis that is unfolding. But I just wanted to point to a piece of an interesting piece of analysis by Javier Blas in the, uh, in the blue in Bloomberg. Um, who points to the fact that actually Paris is arguably facing an even colder, darker winter than Berlin is, in the sense that France is actually more vulnerable than Germany to blackouts once the weather turns colder. And he goes into all sorts of analysis of why this might be the case. But effectively, it's about the it's that France is only able to run about 26 of its 57 reactors at the moment. And there's concerns that it sort of faces an electricity waterloo. Um, the slump in nuclear availability is forcing France to rely even more on gas-fired plants, um, intermittent wind and hydro. And in a worst-case scenario, they actually may be suffering as, as much, if not more severely, than the Germans. And of course, this will also spill out into the rest of Europe as well, because energy uh, France is a major energy exporter. Um, and indeed, um, the EDF is, is actually, I believe, currently um, 
made an emergency request to the British uh, um, energy networks for extra power. So I just wanted to, 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 to mention that because I've been talking a lot about the energy issue um, in recent weeks and, and often in the context of Germany. But I think it's worth saying that while France, of course, still has nuclear power, unlike Germany, um, or obviously that's an ongoing discussion in Germany at present following the war, but even so, um, France is still able to do it. That doesn't mean that they've got off the hook. They are still reliant enough on Russian energy that they may well still be feeling the pinch too. And that will have a big impact across the whole continent. Thank you, Francis and Dom. Uh, Roland, would you like the final words? Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, The Balkans, look, you know, as I said, it it has its own dynamics. It's complicated. It It is, you know, things that have nothing to do with Russia and Ukraine and so on. But my God, uh, it is worth keeping an eye on that. Um, you know, we were talking about it earlier. Um, Maria Zaharova, the, the spokeswoman for the uh, Russian Foreign Ministry, was very quick out the door on Sunday to um, to basically predict a, a NATO-backed Kosovan attempt to, to ethnically cleanse Serbs from northern Kosovo and so on. Um, I think it's naive to say that you know, uh, Vucic would do anything Putin tells him, but there's 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 real real nerves around that. And 30th of September coming up, if they haven't found um, a way of resolving this issue, it's going to be back, um, and and things might get um, you know uh, somewhat interesting. Um, one other thing, um, we were talking about Kherson in the south. Um, we know we are pretty sure that the Russians are heavily reinforcing. Um, down in the south, um, and there is an interesting kind of uh, operational security uh, discipline um, going on down there. We're not quite sure where they're going or what they're doing, um, but the fight in Kherson is going to be bad. There's also suggestions of a Russian spoiling offensive into Zaporizhia, which would which would change things. And don't forget about Donbass. Um, we've seen reports over the past couple of days. If you look at what Ukrainian officials are saying, um, there, there does now appear to be fighting basically on the outskirts of Bakhmut. And, and, and back in May, you know, the fighting was a good, a good, good couple of dozen kilometers away from there. Um, so Russian pressure is still there. Um, and all this talk about an offensive is, is all well and good. Um, but I think the Ukrainians are going to be keeping an eye on their eastern flank. Can they keep on holding, holding that down long enough? for that offensive to go in um, because the Russians are still taking little bits of ground. As regular listeners to this podcast will know, Dominic Nichols and I spent last week in Ukraine. Before our return, Dom had a chance to meet the acting deputy head of Kyiv's military intelligence, Major General Vadim Skibitsky. He recorded some of the discussion to share with Ukraine the latest listeners. Before Dom started recording, Major General Skibitsky said that the military intelligence's number one priority was human-led intelligence, also known as HUMIT. Mr Skibitsi, welcome and thank you for giving some time to The Telegraph. It's very interesting you have HUMIT as your number one priority. That is um, delightfully against the sort of modern way of the world uh, where everyone's trying to buy technology. Why have you prioritised human I know there's a lot of technical aspects to it, but the, but the human intelligence as your number one priority. In our military intelligence, it is a bit uh, different uh, than the system that you have uh, in UK, US, or in NATO, for instance, where human capital, human intelligence, uh, is uh, one of the uh, cornerstones of our activity. and. Uh, in most of uh, the other partner countries, you don't have this kind of uh, huge um, selection of agents and uh, human resources who are working on these tasks. This is because in 2015, there was an ambition task uh, set for us to get into the decision-maker centers of our adversaries. For us, it's very easy to work with our adversary, namely, uh, you know, the country what we're talking about, because we uh, used to share a... a same language, uh, same appearance as people, and uh, until the recent time there was also a similar mentality. And we used to be one country. Therefore, a lot of Ukrainians uh, used to live or still living in Russia. There are many Ukrainians who are actually currently in decision-making circles in, in Russia who were born in Ukraine but then moved at some point to the past and uh, work in Russia and established very good uh, state career there. But they have their relatives, their parents here, 
friends. Uh, they used to study here and in Russia, therefore we have a plenty of uh, spectrum of different people uh, whom we can consider. But these people are undeclared to, to Russia? They are, they are working for you unknown to, to Russia or, or are they, or are they uh, more open in their, in their assistance to you? Uh, obviously it is a covered activity because uh, uh, there is very intense counter-intelligence uh, 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 regime in Russia and therefore whenever you open the declare some sympathy to Ukraine so you are going to be punished. So the uh, severity of the laws uh, on punishment even much higher than they used to be under KGB times. Do you think Vladimir Putin has any idea how big your coverage is in his country? Yes, he might probably knows about this, uh, but he has his grand idea or idea fix in his mind to take control all over Ukraine and he's not giving up on that, regardless of all these kind of considerations. Uh, it looks like he was uh, uh, sticking to this idea uh, for quite some time, but he started to express it openly uh, only on the end of 2021, 2022, when he started to make these historical comparisons with the Greater Russia and the role of Russia in the uh, immediate neighborhood. Uh, so, uh, but presum presumably he was uh, getting on that for quite a long time. You had exceptionally good intelligence or you were very accurate in your assessment of the invasion in prior to February the 24th. Is that largely because of this network you have in Russia? Yes, uh, partially uh, because of this factor and uh, we were not mistaken in our uh, predictions in our data, it was, uh, we were saying, we were talking about uh, 15th of February, it was Putin who just uh, postponed the date of invasion. So he uh, listened to uh, twice to reports of uh, the Minister of Defense and the head of uh, uh, the general uh, staff armed, of armed forces in Russia. and. Uh, from, from the first report, he made uh, a conclusion that they were not ready for invasion, therefore he decided to postpone it. Uh, and uh, also because he, he likes this kind of historical uh, matching of data, uh, he devoted, dedicated this to the 23rd of February 2014, when actually the war in Crimea started. Putin is a great fan of this kind of uh, historical parallels and therefore he likes to follow that. So what, what is your network saying now Putin's ambitions are and, and how much further he wants to go now he's seen this, the level of resistance from Ukraine? Uh, the main strategic goal remains the same. It's uh, uh, capture invasion and uh, total destruction of Ukraine as a state. And uh, he's not likely to stop. So he doesn't have any room for maneuver, so he's, uh, the only way for him is just to continue with this uh, penetration and not just withdraw. And if you understood that in 2014-15 he wanted uh, to get uh, entire Ukraine with all the human resources, economic resources uh, and uh, territory, uh, so uh, these days uh, uh, the perception is different. He understands right now that the resistance of Ukrainians is extremely high and strong. Therefore, he destroys everything which uh, he sees as obstacle to uh, achieve this strategic goal. He'd like to achieve by this uh, two uh, goals as, as a minimum. Uh, to show that Ukraine uh, as a state is not capable to protect and defend its country and its people. And uh, to... Uh, create a sense of fear and panic within the Ukrainian population uh, to decrease the level of resistance. Russia's human coverage of your country must have been a lot lower than yours is of Russia. 
for him to decide that the population would have welcomed his forces. So do you take strength that, that they must have, there must be far fewer Russian agents in your country than you have in his? They were confident that they will be met, they will be met by Ukrainians, uh, uh, likewise they were in Donetsk or in Crimea in 2014. But uh, uh, within these eight years, uh, the uh, uh, attitude towards Russia has been changed significantly uh, within the Ukrainian population. So it was uh, already a completely different picture than they saw in 2014. Obviously, it was a, a huge underestimation from the Russian side, but uh, they obviously had uh, a number of agents, and uh, also uh, there were subversive groups and reconnaissance groups that were just sent to Ukraine uh, on the eve of war within the nearest months, and they've created uh, a network of, of them who were just gathering information, collecting data, and sending this about the education of Ukrainian military regiments and armed forces. Therefore, the first months of war was extremely difficult. So we had to uh, identify them, detect them, uh, neutralize them. But it doesn't mean that uh, we've got rid of all of them. These days, uh, the goal to collect and gather data about the military assistance that is coming to Ukraine from Western partners um, is the goal number one for Russian agents and for all those who are operating on Ukraine's territory. Uh, it's difficult to uh, tell in numbers of concrete people, but uh, we know that <coughs> they use all kinds of intelligence and data collection uh, they might have. It's uh, aerial um, uh, reconnaissance, it's uh, space intelligence, it's uh, agents for working, collaborators from the Ukrainian side, they all try to gather uh, this information and to... Uh, and Russians are actually have enough information about uh, that. You, you can imagine that Ukraine being as big as France, for instance, having 2,500 kilometers of front line, uh, definitely it requires a vast number of resources to uh, detect and to neutralize these kind of people because they are working all over the huge country. And are these people watching the border crossing points? Are they in towns? Are they in Lviv? Are they that, that far west? Are they in Poland? Are they at the Rezal airfield watching what's coming in? How far have they spread? The movement of people is uh, quite intense these days. And if uh, it could be seen that uh, the control over uh, all this uh, is not very strong, this is not the case. The control from the, uh, from the side of military intelligence over uh, all this movement of different people who might be engaged in this in kind both, of... Of special forces, special bodies of, of, of Ukraine, not so, only the military, and all... So there is entire mechanism working actually on detecting and neutralizing uh, these kind of persons. For instance, not just about the special for intelligence uh, services and forces, but also police, also ordinary Ukrainians who are involved in this kind of uh, detecting some newcomers or strangers in their local areas. Uh, and uh, reporting about that uh, to respective authorities. So uh, everybody is working just like uh, one uh, entire body because it is about existence of Ukraine. One example for you. For instance, uh, we've uh, placed an uh, announcement or notification uh, at our website uh, for the citizens of Ukraine who live uh, in Energodar. Uh, the city where uh, the uh, Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant is located. Uh, now it is a temporary occupied territories, but uh, nevertheless. Uh, we've just uh, set up a hotline and uh, asked them to inform about the occupiers, uh, the collaborators, and uh, just to give us uh, uh, fresh information uh, what's going on in the area. And uh, people just started reporting. How far west have you caught some of these people? 
Да, виявляли в тих же самих чернівцях, в тому ж самому Закарпатті. По всій території України. Відповідно, тому що це одна, якщо ми говоримо про... Через те ми говоримо, що в нас співпраця з нашими партнерами не дуже тісна. Що стосується воєнної розвідки, я думаю, що це теж важливо. Чому? Тому що вони вивчають точно Yes, it's definitely in demand from, from, these, from our partners because we're not talking mainly about the security in Ukraine, but it is already about security in Eastern Europe, in Eastern flank of NATO countries and Europe as a whole. How close to the targeting cycle are the US getting with the, with the high Mars? I can't imagine they're actually giving you the coordinates to hit, but are they verifying information you give them before you launch strikes? Я вже, в принципі, говорив, що ми використовуємо саме в багатьох випадках, а в цьому випадку... As I mentioned, in most cases, and in this particular case, In this case in particular, we use the real-time information. And here we work not just with Americans, but uh, with uh, our, the other partners. Uh, and this enables us uh, to um, make very quick decisions and be very efficient uh, uh, in a particular moment of time. And are you able to task British and American satellites? Я не знаю, які там є американські чи британські, але іміджери ми маємо. Uh, I can't uh, tell you whether they are uh, British or Americans, but we have very good satellite imagery. Now, in Britain, um, General Jim Hockenhull, who was our Chief of Defence Intelligence, has just been promoted to be the Head of Strategic Command, so Defence Intelligence, Special Forces, Space, mm-hmm. other bits and pieces. Um, do you work closely with, with General Jim? Are you, are you pleased to see this? Да, ми працюємо з нашими партнерами. Більш того, це, мабуть, не інтерв'ю, я не закінчую. Uh, with, uh, with UK military intelligence, we've been working for a long time, uh, since the time when uh, our regiment was uh, also doing uh, their service in Iraq. And uh, our assessment is that British analysts, uh, uh, intelligence analysts, they are one of the best in the world. Just finally, there's a lot of rumors about Mr. Putin's health. Are you able to tell me anything that is not already in the public domain about, about Vladimir Putin? That, that you have gleaned from your, from your network about his, his health or his personal attitude to this war? Дуже багато інформації стосовно його здоров'я. Однозначно, що він хворий. There are plenty of information about his health and definitely 
uh, he's not in a healthy condition, both uh, physically and mentally. Yeah. And uh, he is uh, uh, in famous of using a lot uh, uh, doubles, uh, his twins, his doubles, uh, just uh, instead of him. This is uh, a factor which is known to everyone. And well, sometimes yeah, really. it's uh, difficult to detect where uh, there is a real Putin or someone who is replacing him. Um, but his inner circle, uh, some of them are quite uh, panicking about uh, his real condition of health and uh, about those decisions that he is taking at the moment. Mr. Skibisky, thank you very much indeed for your time. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope we meet again. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, making her debut with the Telegraph social team, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.